last week, if you tuned in with us, if you were here, uh, you know that we covered a significant amount of ground as we worked through some awkward passages of, of Leviticus, uh, that the details of which do not necessarily apply directly to us in our lives, and so that's why we kind of cruised through that and picked up the durable principles from it. Today, we're moving into Leviticus chapter 16, and that is a transitional chapter. We had up till now instructions as to how the priests are to prepare themselves, what the primary sacrifices and ceremonies are supposed to be in the worship life of, of Israel as they align themselves with God, their covenant God. In what is following, uh, we're going to see that there is much more daily application as to how they are to live as a godly nation, as a nation that reflects the goodness and the righteousness of the God that they serve and that they worship. In between here, we have this chapter, chapter 16, that addresses the singular most important event, the most holy day on, in the Israel, Israel's calendar of the year. Of all celebrations, of all ceremonies, this is the most important and solemn day. One commentator said that the Passover is perhaps the most celebrative day of Israel's calendar, and this day is the most somber. It is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the day when all accounts are meant to be wiped clean by blood sacrifice before God, where the, the nation recognizes once again how important it is to be right before God. And there's so much here that we're not going to try to tackle this, this one chapter in one day. I'm actually just stepping into it today and addressing the very first part of it. So we're just looking at Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 6 today. And we see here, if we just look at the text, it says, Leviticus 16, 1 through 6, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And by the way, I have that text there for you. I know, thank you. After the, the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But, verse 3, in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering, and significantly, verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. In the verses that follow, we see more detail of all that takes place, the sequence of the sacrifices, and how the, how the priest enters into that, that holy of holies, often been called or translated the holiest place. That is a reference to the part of the tabernacle. If you can remember our study of the tabernacle, remember yeah, there's the outer court where all the Levites would minister. And the people of Israel could come to 
the, the entrance of that tent, and they would bring their sacrifice. If they had a sin offering to present, for instance, they would come and, and they would put their hand on the head of that, of that animal, of that lamb or that goat. And that would be symbolic of the transfer of guilt for their sin, that this animal was going to be their substitute that was going to offer atonement, the blood that is shed for the atoning or the covering of sin. And then the priest would take that to the bronze altar and sacrifice the animal there. And past the bronze altar, they would get closer to the main, to the true tabernacle structure. They would, they would approach the laver, the big bronze bowl on a pedestal, where they would ceremonially, ceremonially wash themselves, their hands. Their... And then just the priests. Mind you, the Levites are, are the whole tribe. The Levites are all the descendants of Jacob's son, Levi. And Moses and Aaron were both descendants of Levi. They were both Levites. But Aaron was chosen very specifically to be the first high priest. And then it was appointed by God, as we have already studied, for Aaron's sons and his, his, his male descendants to be the ones who served as the priests in general. And from among them, there was a sort of a lottery to choose which would serve as the high priest for any given year. So we refer sometimes to the Aaronic priesthood, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the priests of Israel who had to be descendants of Aaron himself. When we talk about the Levites, we're talking about the rest of the tribe. The rest of the men of the tribe were given to be dedicated to serve in the tabernacle, later the temple, the permanent structure, and to assist all of the priests. So it was, there, there was a hierarchy even within that structure. Not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was a Levite. And every priest had to be a descendant of, of Aaron. So you see reference to Aaron and his sons, and that even became an extension, that expression to mean his sons were any of the male descendants of Aaron. They were the ones from whom the, chief, the priests were chosen. And then you have the high priest, and this is what makes the high priest significant. It's this one particular day. It's the Day of Atonement. So Aaron was the first of the human high priests, the, the high priest who represented Israel. He would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a special atoning sacrifice for the, all of the people of Israel. But before he could do that, we see that he had to sacrifice for himself. So our first major observation here is the limited access through a human high priest we see in these verses here. Leviticus chapter 16. If you can pop back to the outline, helpful this time. First of all, we see that it was dangerous to approach God unqualified. We saw, and if you have your own copy of Scripture, I encourage you to, to be there if you can so that you can just kind of reference different parts with me quickly without having to leave the outline necessarily. But as we saw back in verses 1 and 2, God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. That's reminding us, that's taking us back to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And I'm sorry, guys, I didn't inter interact all of these parts here, but if you can find that slide. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we see the account of Aaron's sons, who were a couple of the first priests who were serving, and they did the wrong thing. They did not obey God's instructions. So Leviticus 10, I have a slide for that, thank you. Verses 1 and 2, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer 
and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And if you recall, as we went through the elements of the tabernacle, there was a very specific proprietary blend of incense that was to be used strictly in the holy place in the temple, the tabernacle, and in the sanctuary. And so these guys took it upon themselves to throw in their own little bespoke version of of the incense. And what happened? Verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before it became very clear that God was serious when he said, you must do things the way I say, the way I prescribe. He was pointing out to people that he is holy. Holy is different. Holy is distinct. Holy is separate from everything else. He is holy, holy, holy God, which is the superlative. He is the most holy, the most different, the most special, the most unique. And so you cannot approach him in whatever way that you choose. He was making this very clear through the very structure of the tabernacle as well as through the procedures that he gave to the priests and the people as to how to approach him. And this was a very vibrant example of how seriously God meant them to take this. And so this is a reminder, this is a reference to the beginning of, of Leviticus chapter 16 that this is in the context of that having just happened very recently. You know, we, we look at those long chapters in between of all those instructions, we think, wow, that, you know, so there's some time that has passed. Well, actually, not very much. It's just been a matter of days or weeks since this event took place. So it's very fresh in everyone's minds that Aaron's sons were, were destroyed instantly before God for doing things the wrong way. So now God is, is saying, now this, get this, is important. Aaron cannot just stroll in through the veil whenever he wants to. He's the high priest, but he doesn't get to just pass through the veil at his own whim. And there's a a reason given there. The end of verse 2, God says, For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So God's presence is is there in some concentrated form, in some way that that is overwhelming unless he shields the individual as they approach him. Unless they come qualified. What follows describes what it takes for them to become qualified in the verses that we will study in subsequent messages. But this is the beginning of it. They must come on the day that he specifies, and they must come very aware that they are approaching the mercy seat. Now, that mercy seat, if you recall, was what was referred to as that space on top of the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant being that little box covered in gold with the lid that had the that was cast all in one piece with the with the big cherubim with the the angels with the six wings you know the wings covering their face and and their feet and as well as those that can wrap around their whole body and they stand one on each end of the lid of this and their wings reach out their larger wings reach out and touch each other over the center, and they look down on this center space in the lid, and this is where God said that his presence would be. And so when this cloud of smoke and fire came down through from heaven all the way down right into the Holy of Holies, it came and centered itself on that place. 
elsewhere in scriptures referred to as God's foots on earth. And so to come into God's presence before the mercy seat, this was like the, the earthly representation of the throne of, of heaven, God's place on earth. This is the throne room. You don't just walk into the throne room without permission, without qualification. So the human high priest, as significant as he was, didn't have free access. He had to come, and as we see uh, here further, every human high priest had to be purified from sin before he could approach. They themselves had to offer up a sacrifice for themselves. And we see that described in verses 3 through 6 that they are to cleanse themselves physically. They're supposed to put on these fresh linen clothes, which were, again, prescribed before exactly how they're to be woven and the color and everything like that for the priests. But it's interesting that when the high priest comes into the, into the Holy of Holies, when he passes through the veil, he doesn't come wearing all of the high priestly garb. He doesn't have the, the ephod on. He doesn't have the crown on the turban and some of these other things. He comes in the most basic form. He's wearing just the main tunic, over the, the proper undergarment, the, the underlayer, and with the sash, and with the turban, and none of the extras. This just is a sign, I think, of humility that he's coming very simply before God, because God's not impressed by those other things. He's coming for atonement. You see that he had to offer up these particular offerings, which we will look at more closely in the future, but this is what I want us to take away for us to realize here, that before he could, as it says in verse 5, represent the people of Israel to offer atonement for them, he had to deal with his own sin problem. He had to make sacrifices for himself. He had to bring atoning sacrifices for his own sin. This is what is true of the human high priest. But now, I'm just going to look right away at the New Testament reflection as it looks back on these things in the Old Testament. What is important for us to understand from this? We don't have a tabernacle anymore. We don't have a temple. We don't have a human high priest. We're not offering blood sacrifices anymore. And there's a good reason for that. And that is because of the unlimited access that we have through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, as we turn to the, to the outline. We have unlimited access, whereas there's limited access through the human high priest, as we see in Leviticus 16, we have unlimited access through the great high priest who is, who is Jesus. But there had to be replacements for the, for the high priests in the, in the Old Testament for the Israelite people because those, those men were not durable. They didn't last forever. They grew old and they passed away. Now we have a great high priest who has done the work once and for all and continues the work for eternity of interceding for us, of being that unique mediator, and he doesn't have to offer up sacrifices for himself. He can freely offer the forgiveness that we seek and that we need and grant us access to the throne room of heaven. We have access to God. It still requires an atoning blood sacrifice. And that is explained to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, if you want to look there, Romans 3, 23 through 25, or just the first part of 25. I love this passage, actually, uh, verses 21 through 26 is just a, just a wonderful passage of, uh, full of truth so beautifully expressed. 
So I'm just looking at these, uh, these portion in the middle here where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there we are, universal guilt, universal imperfection, impurity. And we've been talking about how the Israelites were being instructed about all of the things that could make them unclean before God. Well, here we are all called unclean, essentially. We all fall short of God's standard of perfection. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're someone who hasn't become accustomed to the use of the word sin as it's, as it's understood in the Bible, some people recoil from that. What? You're saying, I've sinned? You're saying, I'm a sinner? I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I've never, you know, embezzled from, from my employer. I've, you know, I, I've been a good husband, father, wife, mother, child, student, whatever. I'm not a sinner. Well, according to the Bible's definition, you are. And, and so am I. And so is every living human being. Because the standard of being a sinner is not being as bad as you could possibly be. It's not being worse than the people around you. It is falling short of the standard of absolute holiness and perfection that characterizes God alone. So we're all guilty. So it says here, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. But there's a good news side of this, because you can be justified. I love the Sunday school definition that we, that we, we got as kids. I think it still works. It's easy to remember. What does justified mean? It's, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. God declares us legally clean. The, the, the record is expunged. Doesn't deny the reality that we did sin before, but we no longer stand guilty and expecting judgment. He's stepped up and paid the fee. He's paid the fine. He's done the time himself for us as a substitute. So you can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, that's the purchasing, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, the Father, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Wow, that verse itself needs unpacking, but we are, we are purchased that, that redemption is something has been paid that needed to be paid. In this case, it's a penalty, a blood penalty for sin. We, are, we have redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, so God himself provided the way of salvation, and he put Jesus his own son, forward as a propitiation. That's the satisfaction. So in other words, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. And it's interesting, the same passage where we just talked about the mercy seat there in in Leviticus 16, the word that's translated there from the Hebrew, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it's the very same word from which we get propitiation right here in Romans 3.25. It's the same Greek word. That mercy seat is what Jesus is. It's that place of satisfaction. He's the one who's put forward as the satisfaction. He's that one that, that satisfies the Father's standard of righteousness. So God provided for us, out of his own expense, the way that we can be forgiven. And how do we receive it? We have to work really hard. By the way, can we back off the heat a little bit? I'm melting up. I, I remember visiting two 
I remember visiting Costa Rica many years ago and driving through the countryside and seeing people along the side of the road walking on this very rugged country road barefoot, and they're in the middle of nowhere. And the thing that, that just boggled my mind was that many times you could see that they had shoes tied by the laces and, and, and looped through the straps of their backpack or over their shoulder. So they're walking on, on these raw, bare feet for miles and miles and miles when they've got shoes. And so I had to ask our you know, guide, what's going on here? And they said, well, such and such city, so many miles away, there's a famous cathedral. And these people come far and wide and walk there for all those miles barefooted to come and pray and try to achieve God's mercy and forgiveness, to show God their, how, how committed, how zealous, how serious they are. And I just thought, well, that's sad. That's unnecessary. And we went and, and we in our van, drove past these people, and then we went to that city. We went and we walked into that cathedral, and it's a very old and very beautiful cathedral, humanly speaking, but, but the darkness of what was happening in there was tragic because here you had these hard cobblestones on the floor that went all the way down the middle with, with various metal, uh, you know, heavy bronze inlay images of biblical pictures and scenes and things like that with all of its sharp edges and things like that. And then you would see these people start from the, from the back who've already trekked barefooted for miles and miles and miles. Now they get down on their bare knees at the end of this very long central aisle and begin to crawl across this rough, rugged, hard ground, stopping and genuflectingly. All of this in the hope of gaining some favor from God, trying to impress God with their sacrifice. All of that is completely unnecessary, completely useless. A tragedy. Because Jesus paid it all. He's the one who, who offered himself. Not only did he stand between man and, and God as, as the perfect high priest, he offered himself. He had no sin to atone for of his own, unlike the human high priest. And yet, he came and offered himself not only as a perfect mediator, but as the perfect sacrifice. Being completely holy himself, he offered up his own life, his own blood, to achieve for us once for all what we could never achieve for ourselves. The atonement's been made. Jesus' blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. I can stand in Christ's righteousness because I've accepted, as it says right here very plainly, is to be accepted, to receive, be received by faith. It's just by leaning into it, just by accepting it, appropriating it for myself by belief. But Jesus did this for me, and I accept it gratefully. And so I am now justified. It's as though my sinful rags 
have been taken away and destroyed, and I'm dressed in pure white before God. An innocent person, not a convict, but a child, a son, an honored son adopted into the family. Jesus, his blood, his righteousness, my beauty, my glorious rest. Amidst flaming worlds, no matter what's happening not only in this world that, that rejects God, but in that time to come when, when hell is becoming more populated, those who rebel against God and refuse his gift, that's the alternative. But when judgment comes in flaming worlds, in these, I can stand bold. I will be beautifully arrayed, beautifully dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. Bold shall I stand in that great. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Who can accuse me of anything in God's sight? Because Jesus' blood has purified me. Jesus' blood has cleansed me. God has said, that satisfies my justice. That's propitiation that I can accept. Anyone who might try to hurl accusations against Brian, it's just not going to stick. God's going to say, I don't hear it. He's been, he's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. His sins are washed away. He is not guilty as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing I can do to impress God. I want to live gratefully in accordance with what he has done for me, but I have no fear of death. I don't like the idea of dying, but I have no fear of death. What's on the other side? Not a problem. Because I will be able to boldly stand before the throne of God, arrayed in the righteousness of Jesus. No fear. No one can accuse me. No one can send me to hell because I've been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. We have this perfect great high priest who has access to God on his own merits. Jesus is the uniquely qualified great high priest. I just want to finish by reading a, a series of verses from the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is the book in the New Testament that most reflects upon the Old Testament and demonstrates what those things were trying to teach us about ultimate spiritual reality in heaven. So, uh, so if you'll join me, gentlemen, on Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, every high priest, and this, again, remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people, so they understood the context, the historical context of all these references. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's what we were just learning about. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. High priest himself, a sinner. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins as he does for those of the people. So reflecting again on the, on the Old Testament high priest, he, had to, he, he experienced sin himself. He had to offer up sacrifice for his own sin before he could help by offering up sacrifices for the people. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I like the sound of that. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Through the curtain, 
where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus comes as a higher kind of a priest, a different sort of a priest than the Aaronic priests. He entered through the veil once for all, and as you recall, as Jesus offered up his sacrifice on the cross and said, it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that was a lot higher than any human being could reach and a lot thicker than anyone could tear. God the Father just ripped it apart, said, no more need for this. Jesus has now passed through with the perfect sacrifice to make access free for anyone who will accept what he has done. Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 27, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. We said that, didn't we? But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, Jesus does. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you, what is it to be saved to the uttermost? Thoroughly, completely, permanently given. And he continues to intercede. He continues to stand in the gap between holy God the Father and, and sinful human beings like me. He intercedes for them. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily for his, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 22-25. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf the perfect great high priest. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is one of those moments where where I want to say very genuinely, thank you, Jesus. People use that phrase ca casually, but I mean, just a few thoughts then to wrap up. Things to think about, just to sum up, very simply, human priests cannot offer the mediation that we need with God because they are sinners just like us. And there are still various religions and, and strains of religion that, that put forward human priests, say, you need to come talk to the priest, you need to have him pray for you, and, and so on. 
Well, according to what we've read in Scripture, Jesus did away with that once and for all. There's, there's no human priest. There never was a human priest who could really offer the permanent solution for a person because he himself is a sinner. And this continues to be true. So any religion or any variety of religion that says you need to come to a human priest for them to mediate between you and God, that is not aligned with Scripture. They themselves are sinners just like us. But in contrast, Jesus is the perfect high priest who has offered the perfect atoning and propitiatory sacrifice once for all. So He, Jesus, has left us no other way to approach God but the Father. And again, I come back to this. This is, this is such an important verse to know. You should all be able to quote it by now. John 14, 6, where Jesus made it crystal clear. He was making a, a unique, exclusive, absolutely politically incorrect statement when he said, I am the way the truth, the life, no one, get it? No one comes to the Father except for me. It was a bold statement, Dan. Those of you who have come to Jesus Christ, I, every time I see these truths again and again in so many passages of Scripture, it's, it's just like this, this concert, it's like... Gilbert referring to Handel's Messiah, which is just a glorious, beautiful, uh, organized cacophony of sound. <laughs> you hear all these moving voices and, 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 and these parts, not only in the chorus, but in the, in the orchestra, and all of these different things coming together to make this glorious tapestry of sound. It's just beautiful. So with Scripture, as I come to one passage after another and one book after another, it's all orchestrated to tell us this again and again to make it crystal clear to everyone. Jesus is the way. Jesus has done it all. And we as Christians should never get tired of that message. I hope not because I come around to that again and again in my sermons, but I can't help it because this is what Scripture, scripture is shouting out to me again and again. Jesus is God's very special provision. He's unique. He's singular in what he offers. We must respond, and when we have, we need to remind ourselves. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to live the gospel. We need to live in accordance with these truths. And, and I fall short day after day, week after week, and so I need reminding. If you haven't even taken that first step yet, if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, if you haven't accepted his atoning sacrifice on your behalf, then you must start there because you remain in the line of fire of God's wrath until you correct that, until you accept that atoning sacrifice. There is no other way by Jesus' own testimony. He is the only way. So I challenge you to consider the claim work in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to sing that hymn one more time. Right? We're just going to put the words up, but those of you who feel like you can probably find those notes again, I'm going to ask those singers to come up and join me again, all of you who came up and sang parts, okay, if you would, and uh, we're going to sing that because I just love the text of this hymn as it reminds us of these truths that we have studied this morning. Right.
Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. I just cannot understand what it must have been for you as holy God to humble yourself to become like one of your own creatures and to live among them and to be misunderstood by them and to be abused by them and to submit yourself even to the point of death at their hands for our sake. Offer yourself as that perfect, unblemished, holy sacrifice to make atonement for my sin and for everyone else to be be possessed that forgiveness only by faith, by accepting what you have done. No merit of our own, no bloody feet and knees required, no continual sacrifices. Thankful for what you have done for us, Father, and for any who have heard or will hear this message who, who have not yet grasped hold of this this costly gift of salvation for which you have paid the entire cost. Pray, Father, that you would impress on them today the importance of accepting by faith your gift of grace. Father, thank you for sending yourself to us in, in love, sending your Son to us. Not only to die in our place, but to reveal you to us as we have the record in Scripture today pray, Father, that you would help those of us who know you to desire a warmer, closer, more consistent relationship with you. We pray that you would make your spirit very active in our lives and that you would help us to set aside those things that stand in the way as barriers to the spirit's wisdom and guidance and conviction. Pray these things. All right, singers, please come. And if you would stand with me, let's sing. Come on up. Yep. Go. Altos, if you would, please. I think, I don't know, Anna might be helping downstairs. Is Anna here? Okay. Come on, singers. Be bold. Anybody want to?